Andrea Seabrook spent more than a decade at National Public Radio, and she covered Congress for a good part of that time. She left NPR to start something of her own, Decode DC, a podcast and syndicated radio program that cuts through the blandification of politics and speaks the unvarnished truth that gets lost in the interest of presenting supposedly balanced viewpoints. Andrea is fair, but she doesn't shirk from cutting through layer after layer of spin, something that's typically not possible in conventional broadcast media. Welcome to the new disruptors, Andrea. Thank you. Hi, it's great to be here, Glenn. Nice to have you. And I, you know, I think you're one of the great examples of what kind of change we're seeing in in the media realm because it seems to me that decode dc is a huge departure from the previous uh, you know normal way of doing things in public radio if you were pitching decode dc to a public radio network like npr as a traditional show what would you have had to do to to get into the door that way well in fact glenn i tried um (laughs) for a long time i should say i love npr uh all of my journalistic instincts uh grew up there and it, it was sad to leave in a way because they're a big organization and they've become somewhat risk averse or what they see as risk averse. And so I tried for I tried for about 18 months to sort of say, "Hey, you should you should let me do this. You should let me step back from our traditional day-to-day reporting on what, you know, this leader and that leader said in a canned press conference that everyone else is covering uh, and let me just do a bigger think pieces or, or pieces about the larger trends and the process of the place and sort of how it's broken. I'm speaking specifically of Congress here." And to be fair, NPR loved all those ideas, wanted every story that I wanted to do, but they wanted it, they wanted me to do it after I got done with my daily duties of reporting, (laughs) you know, three and a half minutes for all things considered and another four for morning edition on the story of the day. And you can't do that. In some ways, it's a resource problem. It's, uh, you know, NPR is is not flush with cash. In fact, it's running a deficit right now. And they couldn't just say, okay, you are main congressional correspondent, go off and do what you want, you know, cover it however you want. You could say also that it's a failure of uh, a lack of creativity. Didn't it come up too when tar- Car Talk decided to, uh, the folks behind Car Talk decided to go off the air and they said, okay, we'll, sh- we'll remix older episodes and air them, you know, and tell people that these aren't new episodes. And I remember there was an interesting debate, and it's just a few months ago, and people said, gosh, they should get off the air, make room for new shows, while stations and others said, hey, this is still the cash cow. You know, Tar yeah. Talk, people don't listen to it because it's new. People listen to it because they love it. Is, is there room on the you know dial, as it were, is there room in the schedule for new programs, too, or is that part of the problem? It depends on the station. I mean, mm-hmm. one thing about NPR is there are stations that are very old-fashioned and are desperately trying to keep raising money with proprietary shows with an all-on-air audience. And there are stations that are doing more creative things producing their own programming, launching their own podcasts, putting stuff up on SoundCloud. The problem, I think, that NPR and the big networks on public radio have is that people are stopping, aren't going to use the stations as they used to. Because you can get great programming on your phone. And this is not a new thing, but it still feels very new within public radio. Public radio, by and large, is still pretty unprepared for the revolution. And, you know, an example of that is if you listen to the NPR channel and XM, or if you download the daily podcast from NPR, you may not have noticed, but there is no way to listen to Morning Edition and All Things Considered, the big flagship shows, except 
on NPR stations. The stations themselves have demanded that those shows not go up as podcasts, not run on satellite radio, not be available in any way other than separate pieces or a stream later after after they've been run on the stations live so it's an it's sort of an artificial way of keeping the stations necessary and that can't last it it cannot last it's so funny how that's breaking down and the transition part is going to be sort of impossible i mean that's happening for television broadcast and i was on jeopardy uh, a few months ago and cool. uh, jeopardy's a, jeopardy's a syndicated program and everyone said to me can we watch it if we don't have tv or we missed it and it's no you can't you can never watch jeopardy after it airs unless they rerun it and i feel like that's to a certain extent what you're describing that npr is doing is they're protecting their syndicated station partners uh, who need the underwriting revenue new locally they need the local sponsors to fund the station to do all the stuff they do and they can't do that unless they have a sort of exclusivity about the live flagship programs live flagship news programs yeah. that seems like a hard thing to sustain it, it seems impossible I and mean, you know it's funny we're doing uh one of the upcoming episodes of decode dc deals with a year after sopa pippa and copyright and sort of what washing how washington deals with things because washington is you know 75 years beyond the culture be, behind the culture <laughs> Generally, and and my wonderful, amazing producer Lena, I said, "Hey Lena, could you look up for me the Supreme Court case where Sony tried to block the VCR from going into production and sale in the United States because the MPA, the Motion Picture Association of America, tried to block Sony from the from marketing the VCR." Mm-hmm. And there's a famous the Betamax. Yeah, case, the Betamax. Right? Yes, yeah. exactly, and. And because that's like an early example of, oh, God, oh, God, we're, we're not going to exist if this new piece of technology comes along. And she was she looked it up on Wikipedia, of course. And she's, uh, I will say, uh, a good bit younger than I am. Uh, and she she turned to me and said, what is this thing called time shifting? I have no oh idea what they're God. talking about. <laughs> and I was like, that's because you don't do anything but oh, time man. shift. And do you remember when all the talk was like, oh my God, you'll be able to watch something when it isn't on. I was involved in a lawsuit with the Electronic Frontier Foundation 10 years ago. I stepped out of my reporter role briefly. Um, it was Craig Newmark was the lead plaintiff. Uh-huh. In fact, there are five of us who owned replay TVs and all there's 29 media companies were suing replay TV over time shifting and space shifting. I think TiVo was around too, but I think Replay had offered a way you could send programs between devices owned by the same people. And um, we fought and got uh, entered in the, the main lawsuit as interested parties. And in the end, uh, Replay backed off, they sold, they settled, and so forth. So it wasn't settled, but it was that was actually the end of a debate over whether you could time or space shift because people just did it after that. Yeah. Like the media companies realized they couldn't hold it back even if they wanted to. And then you had the rise of YouTube and then later Hulu. I think it's even new that you can buy DVDs of TV programs yeah. uh, or download them as digital downloads. That all came afterwards when I think those companies realized you can't hold that back. We need to make money from it instead of trying to keep the, you know, hold the torrent back as it were. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sorry. And, no, that's, that's a good one. And here is Lena, my, you you know, 20-something producer who who is young and educated and amazing, and she doesn't even know what time-shifting refers to. You know, it's it's over. It's way over. It was over before that lawsuit, really, it seems like. And when you bring up Sopa and Pippa, I think I mean, this obviously ties in directly to, um, to the kind of topic you're trying to cover in your show is... 
I think from the outside world, a bunch of us out here, I'm in Seattle, my friend, friend in Portland were talking about this when that was going on, and we assumed we would lose on the copyright issue. We assumed the big media companies would win. You know, Chris Dodd is out there rallying forces for the MPAA now, and it's just a former senator, and it just seemed impossible. And then, hey, wait, something happened with between Reddit and uh, Google and all these other firms and all these individuals, and this attempt to turn all kinds of seemingly legal behavior into criminal behavior in the interest of protecting copyright holders was overturned. How do you cover that story with Decode DC, where you couldn't do that in NPR in the same way? So just reminding everyone what happened, both from a Silicon Valley point of view and from a Washington point of view, and then looking at the difference between what Silicon Valley thinks Washington learned about the internet and the people in it (laughs) and what Washington actually learned about the internet and the people in it. And I think people in Silicon Valley are are often shocked to hear the, hear it when I say to them, you know, what Washington learned was don't piss off Google. You know, they're like, wait a second, Google didn't have anything to do with Google was just like a Laker. Oh my God. (laughs) What Washington learned was be stealthier uh, about doing these things. What the MPAA and Chris Dodd learned was that, you know, there's, there is a, a sleeping giant and you have to tiptoe around him. And what, what Silicon Valley thinks Washington learned was the internet should be free. And this is all about freedom of speech and the Bill of Rights. This is protected speech by any standard. And that's just not what they learned. And so there's still a huge disconnect. And that's why you see things like the ITU happening, people trying to get the same kinds of restrictions passed in different ways, and it will be ongoing. Very recently, out of the uh, Oversight and Government Reform Committee in the House of Representatives, which is controlled by Republicans, a staffer on that committee came out with like a white paper, a memo, basically saying speech on the internet should, we should consider it already protected by the Bill of Rights, which is a very conservative argument. It is what took the Equal Rights Amendment down, for example. It is a, we don't need to legislate more, we need to legislate less kind of argument. Within the day, that was sucked back into the committee. So that staffer got (laughs) whacked down because there is, you know, the epic battle between the big old content makers, the Motion Picture Association of America, the RIAA, what is that? According Industry Association of America, the NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters. These are big titans of lobbying and they have a lot of of uh, money invested in the campaigns of the people who are making the laws the internet does not the internet is still seen in washington as this like rogue band of former D playing techies washington is still going to act as if the culture was like it was 30 years ago by and large and so I, I think that's that's really what we're looking at in that show. So is this a story you couldn't tell in this fashion at NPR? Would they let you tell? And I'm not. And again, this isn't critiquing them or their editorial position, which is exceedingly fair, maybe too fair, right? So is this a story you could tell this straightforwardly if it were an NPR segment or show? Or do you have latitude that this is a thing you're producing yourself and this is a show that takes – you don't have to take anybody else into consideration in terms of changing the message? I think I could have done it at NPR, but it would have probably taken me a long time to explain what the story is to my editors, because Mm. they just aren't 
you know, NPR has one technology reporter, and that person does some stuff on copyright. You know, occasionally she does great work on, she did a great story on This American Life about copyright law. But by and large, my editors wouldn't see this as a congressional story. They would see it as a tech story. They wouldn't, you know, see it as a governance story. And they would think it was secondary to the fiscal cliff. There's also the fact that I, by myself, I can assume what I want to assume about what my audience knows. I can assume that my if, if my audience is getting this online, there's a certain amount of explanation that I need to do to sort of get my listener to the right place to hear the conflict in it or hear the different issues at play. But I can assume a, a, you know, a basic sense of flexibility and understanding of the, of the terms that I'm using even. If you're putting a piece on NPR, the audience is vast. The weekly cum audience of unique listeners on Morning Edition is 25 million people. And you cannot assume that they know anything about copyright, for example, or about uh, digital issue. They, they won't know what digital rights management is. You have to explain what digital rights management is. And, and you just can't get the same level of sophistication in your story with that audience. And so it's not just NPR being a little dusty or, or stodgy, which I think it's fair to say as well, but it's also just I've gone into a little bit more of a of a niche market. And, and that niche market, I think, happens to be the future. <laughs> <laughs> and it will grow. But, uh, but right now, you know, I can make different assumptions. Beautiful transition into the question of doing this on your own is that until recently, being able to build a big enough audience, unless you had something like you're a Kevin Smith and could do a podcast like that. There were, you know, there's a, a number of notable examples of podcasters uh, and video casters who've been able to figure out a sponsorship model or figure out some method where they had a, an audience large enough to make the numbers pencil out, or it was an adjunct to something else they did and promoted it. So it made sense in the context of that, even if there wasn't a revenue stream, it seems like we've hit a point where, you, you know, you're not the first person to do this now, which is fascinating too, is I think you're, you know, Roman Mars, your friend of mine, Roman Mars of 99% Invisible paved the way a bit, although he was following, I think a similar path that you're starting now. Can we talk about when you started out with Decode DC, NPR wasn't going to work in that context. You said, I want to do this on my own. What were the options available to you that you could pursue when you, when you think about this just a few months ago? Yeah, it's been a whirlwind, man. I mean, I, I, I left, I, I gave my notice to NPR at the end of May of la, of uh, this year, 2012. Still, tw- I know, it's still 2012. Know, it's hard like, to <laughs> and then I left at the end of July. I gave him two months notice. Well, and, and, then, and there was a lot of a lot of fuffle about that because, you know, yeah. let's, let's be frank, you're, you're a well-known voice. People who are public radio fans, we've been listening to you. I'm, I'm a big fan of yours, by the way. Thank you. And I'm a bash fan. And we've been listening to you for more, you know, over 10 years in NPR and then other programs before that. You're a known quantity, and to I have a lot of friends in public radio, and the notion of leaving a full-time paying job for <laughs> national public radio is the you know it's like oh my god what just happened that seemed to be a bit of the reaction I saw. Yeah, actually, I think that's the biggest shock to everyone was you know I had 
the best job you could have at the network, <laughs> uh, at the best network you could be on. I had probably what I like to call the best job in journalism, and I resigned from it <laughs> to go start a blog, as some people say. Well, that's oh, what I said. This reminds me of everyone. This is the Rick Redfern and Doonesbury. You know, a decade ago, yeah. journalists were like, the dot-com crash, I'm going to start a blog. And then, you know, there wasn't money in it then, but that had, I had that same feeling now of like, I don't know, John Markoff on the tech beat in the New York Times or Paul Krugman. Forget yeah. the New York Times op-ed, I'm going to start a blog. <laughs> right, right. But I think I had a lot of, a lot of confidence, like it or not. It was, it did, <laughs> it did feel, it did, uh, I had to sort of gird my loins to do it. Um, I, you know, like I said, I love NPR, but there was a part of me that had to try and cover this in a new way. And I think the thing that made me feel secure in doing it was that I wasn't betting on the model. At, I wasn't betting on the business model. I think the problem that has happened with people saying, I'm going to go start a blog. I'm going to go start, you know, this thing and go straight to my, re- you know, straight to my listeners or my readers. They're betting on a business model left thinking, here's what I know how to do. I'm not changing what I know how to do. I want to do it better all the time, but I'm going to make great, essentially great radio. And my bet the whole time has been, if I make great radio, which is what people love me for, then the content will, they will find the content or the content will find them. It's still sort of the wild west on the web, on the on the internet. There's still a thousand ways you could get any one podcast. And I think ultimately that will narrow down as, as things get more sophisticated. But if it's if it's the same great content from a different place, people will ultimately find it. It's a very interesting thing because that that was been the message I think for like fifteen years. But I feel like we're seeing the fulfillment of it in the last couple in a way that before you had a you had a sort of market and fight a lot and it's it's not that suddenly you don't have to work obviously but that you can work towards getting the attention you need there's also that issue i think we should talk about which is starting with an audience and i get questions all the time from people who want to do kickstarter projects or want to start a blog or podcast or something and I think the commodity of audience is really hard. You have an audience that knows you. You're, you know, you've got a name that people know and a voice that people know. Or Roman Mars with his show, he spent two years building up 99% Invisible. You look at uh, Amanda Palmer, you know, sort of the one of the big examples on Kickstarter, but she spent 20 years becoming an overnight success and, um, yeah, and exactly. you know, paying her dues. And so Kickstarter is an interesting thing because it scales to the level of word of mouth and audience you have is you could raise a thousand dollars from 20 people, or if you're in Atman Palmer, you raise a million dollars from 25,000 people. So where does the audience play into that? You, you obviously, you knew people would know you by name, people who are interested in the things you want to do. You could go out there and do the things that they, they know you for. Did that play into your decision knowing that you would be able to bring an audience with you or an audience would find you because they knew you? Yeah, somewhat. I, when I bounced it around with a couple of people, it seemed like that might be possible. I'll tell you, when you're on public radio uh, and you leave NPR, it's really hard to to tell that audience where you are <laughs> if you're not actually on NPR telling them where you are. But you got um, that, right? This is the thing, is you left on good terms, and your colleagues, I think, really gave you a boost there. As I heard, I don't know, 15 interviews with you, it seemed like, and one was on NPR itself, wasn't it? But then also other yes. programs saying, here's where you're going to be able to find her. Yes, yes, and I'm very, very thankful for that. And I think uh, 
that's a real that's a real um i don't know i it's just i'm really thankful for that um because it it helped me sort of get it out there plus there were a lot of news stories in really mainstream publications and i think they politico did a story um about me leaving npr and that really focused the washington establishment on the fact that i was leaving one of the top news organizations to go start some random little thing and (laughs) i think that got a lot of people's attention it got a lot of people's attention that oh wait a second what happens if she's right and i think they're still in the throes of that i mean every time i talk to a friend at npr they're like "Uh uh-oh uh-oh you're doing really well aren't you (laughs) you know i don't mean that in a mean way i just mean like maybe maybe the old way is falling apart faster than we we thought it would Right, and they want to know how do I <laughs> how do I get in on yeah, this before actually, it's, it's yeah. too late. But it's I mean, well, I think part of it though is you're not Howard Beale, right? This isn't network, and you're not you're not mad as hell, and you can't take it anymore. But but there is a little bit of that message in what you're yes. doing is that it wasn't just that NPR um, NPR isn't restraining you, it wasn't holding you back, but it was more like there were kinds of stories you simply can't tell there, and the structure of being able to build your own show wasn't a, available there. So it, it is a bit. I think the story got pitched in the media a little bit you know andrew seabrook is mildly angry as heck and she's not going to take it anymore because you had stories that i think those of us who read broadly we know there's stuff going on that isn't being represented as bluntly as we like and and i think this is where john stewart and maybe comedy central has made an impact is the the fact that parody and satire and lampoon and all of the those techniques on that and on colbert report make us have to confront the realities of it it seemed to me that there's a greater acceptance in mainstream media for talking in a more direct fashion and I felt like you were trying to take advantage of that hump where you can say, look, I'm a serious news person and I want to be able to do this without the parody involved and so forth. I want to tell right. true stories without intermediation. Absolutely. Uh, if there's the one thing that I would say about what Decode DC is about, it's about starting from the viewpoint that Washington is broken. Not not acting as if everything is sort of going along, and this is what they say, and this is what the other people say, and we get to choose between them, or how do you, you know, am I a Democrat or a Republican? But, like, the whole system is dysfunctional, and anything that comes out of it is a product of a dysfunctional system, and you have to be very careful about what it means. And, yes, I think one of the main messages and points of Decode DC is, I'm a serious journalist who has that as the underpinning. This place is broken. And I'm not going to cover it as if everything that were said at every press conference was a legitimate point of view. <laughs> um, you know, because because right. when when we get to the point where when journalists have to cover everything that's said in that system as if it were a legitimate point of view, then you end up with the false equivalency of global warming is going to screw us up, and but these guys say there is no global warming. You end up reporting things that are just flat out false. And that's not journalism. That is keeping score of somebody else's red team, blue team game. And so, so uh, the way I see it, I'm not the one with the bias by saying the the system is broken. I think a lot of the journalists covering the place and a lot of the news organizations, more importantly, have bought into the two major narratives for what's going on there and the and the universe of ideas, which is very small, that are within the, those two teams. And so I've, I'm trying to shake off that frame. 
and build a frame that I think is more realistic and explains a lot of the things that are wrong with the place. Well, the timing um, you have couldn't be more perfect, too, is when you when you announced the show, it wasn't that things weren't broken, but I felt like there was still this thick veneer that, yeah, you know, everyone has different points of view, blah, blah. And then Romney having suffered a defeat that was widely predicted so far ahead of time and people the the ability of pollsters and others to spin the story even though the story was already there even though nate silver and other people were telling you exactly what was going to happen exactly what the polls said that got stripped off and i feel like there's this vulnerability right now and then the fiscal cliff happening and then this yeah. you know the shooting uh the uh hurricane sandy like all of these things happen one after another after another that seem to say we can't just look at this as if everything is equivalent anymore. Now, I'm sure everything will revert more to the mean, but I feel like you are doing this show, you're launching it right at a ta- time when these nerves are raw and people may be more willing to listen to this notion you're expressing. I hope that that's true, because for example, with this fiscal cliff thing, it is such a load of baloney. <laughs> there um, is no fiscal cliff, is there? There, there really it, isn't. First of all, there's no fiscal cliff. Second of all, every single knot that is tied, it's a huge tangle of a knot, <laughs> Congress tied in its own damn self. Yeah, yeah. Uh, none of, it's all artificial. All of it is completely artificial, and no one is to blame but themselves. I mean, the only reason why the fiscal cliff is like this is because because of the tax cuts that artificially expired after 10 years, because they've never fixed the amount, the payment system of uh, Medicare and Medicaid, because they created the super committee and hung this sort of Damocles over their own damn heads of sequestration, and then they didn't do anything on <laughs> the super committee. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I, I mean, should point it's out like, to listeners, this, is gonna, this will air in January. We're talking in December, so we're assuming in December everything's going to be fixed, of course, by the time this airs. <laughs> it, it'll either be fixed or suddenly everyone will wake up and be like, oh, God, it, what, what, were we, what was that? that we're talking was dumb. to the future. You know, I, sh- <laughs> I, should, I should shift gears for a moment, too, because now that we're talking about money, we're talking about the fiscal cliff, financial realities. You're funding this show yourself, and you're using kind of a combination of old model and new model, right? Is that your crowdfunding was a big part of it, but yes. you're also working with sponsors, underwriters, and so forth. I mean, this is a big shift, but I want to ta- talk about how that affected you because you you came out, obviously you knew about crowdfunding before you planned the show. Uh, I know that SoundCloud provided some initial seed money to help get things going, but where did you make the decision where you said, okay, I am going to have to bite the bullet and, and take this to Kickstarter and see what happens? It was the plan actually all along. Oh, um, that's great. Yeah, I had, uh, I was, I have a lot of f- faith in crowdfunding in general. I did a story with Peter Overby at NPR a few years ago where it was right at the beginning of the debate on the health care bill. Speaking of the devil, Chris Dodd was involved in, in writing that bill before he went to work for the NBA. And so Peter and I hired a journalist, a, a, a photo journalist, and had him come into the room of the first Senate hearing about the new health care bill after Obama and, and the Democrats took control of everything in 08. And we had that journalist stand at the front of the room, and instead of taking pictures of Chris Dodd and all the senators, we had him turn around and take a panoramic photo of the room. And then we brought those, those photos back to NPR, and we put them up on the web. Oh, yes. And we asked, we asked people in Washington and all over the United States to identify the lobbyists in the room for us. I will put a link to that in the show notes. That is, I remember that was a fascinating and terrifying <laughs> moment. It was wonderful. Yes. And it was amazing because we didn't know. We knew there were lobbyists in the room because 
we sort of knew, know how it works. You know, the lobbyists who have paid for the lawmakers' campaigns who are writing the health care bill, you know, from Eli Lilly and, and Tiva Novartis are sitting in there casting an eye, a hairy eyeball at the lawmakers as they write this bill that would change their industry. But we didn't know to the extent or the depth that we would be able to get their names where they work. And, and we it was the first real experiment at NPR in crowdsourcing. And of course, we had to take every tip we got and vet it fully and make sure we knew what we were talking about and make sure that it was actually true. But we ended up with a whole, you know, a, a fairly comprehensive list of big healthcare companies that make, you know, devices and drugs and insurance, all those in the room sitting there. And to me, that was, I, I was already a fan of crowd sourcing. To me, that was a moment where I said, oh, this is a game changer for journalism. It's a game changer in in so many ways. And people are people really want to be involved in the journalism that I'm doing. And it attracts a different kind of audience. And it becomes almost like a giant team of people who really support what you're doing and they believe in it. And the same thing, I mean, Kickstarter, we made a lot of money on Kickstarter and that was great, but its real worth was that a huge number of people gave their own money for this project, for me to be doing this. And I know that I report to them and they are invested in what this show does. And it's it's a really different kind of audience than the passive sit down at the steering wheel and, and push the on button. It's active. And um, the stories that I do seem to travel much farther, even though the audience is, you know, a tenth or, or smaller of what I had at NPR. What I keep coming back to when I talk to folks who have done, you know, any number of things like this is that the smaller audience size is fine because it's um it is that more active audience and and whether it's money like uh, I talked to indie game the movies filmmakers a few weeks ago and they took in a fraction of the gross they would running the film themselves doing their own film tour uh, distributing the film online themselves for digital downloads but the fact was the smaller they, they kept a larger percentage of it and they had a direct relationship with pretty much everyone who's seen the film and yeah. that's a totally different model than in you know in your world where yes people are already giving money from their pocket to support their local radio station and that fil- some of that filters national public radio some of that filters to your salary but you don't know those people yeah, those, are, exactly. those aren't your that they're your audience but they're not your patrons they're not your uh, collaborators yeah, exactly. It is it is such an amazing thrilling thing. And now now I'm in this funny situation where I'm producing this wacky little podcast which gets a lot of attention and now I have big important NPR stations calling me up asking to run the podcast on NPR. Well, tell, <laughs> yeah, and tell me about the financial thing here because so you raised you were looking and out you know and again an unabashed fan I was out there like a lot of people banging trash cans or Twitter trash cans for you when the Kickstarter was going <laughs> on because it was a scary moment I know there were points you were trying to raise $75,000 and there were points where you know you're inching up there and you're like oh my god is this ever going to happen and, and I a number of people are like no you hit the inflection point we swear it's going to happen 80% of projects that get past Twenty percent, you know all this, and but you're still. What were you feeling when you're watching that number? Not at seventy five grand, as you got closer and closer to the final day. It was probably the most stressful three weeks of my career, <laughs> and I mean that quite literally. I, I could interview the president and be less stressed out <laughs> than I was stressed out. This is a stake. The stakes are for you. It's not. Yeah. They're not right. My so, reputation, my work on the line. It's not my network. It's not my. It's just me, baby. We 
did it in 24 days. We set the level at 75,000 and we made that on the 22nd day. So it was 22 days of sheer panic at times and sort of other times trying to distract myself and sort of waking up at three in the morning and being like, what else could I be doing? What am I? Ah. And the model though is you've got, you, you finish with a hundred thousand dollars less, you know, about 10% in fees. So you've got that money for production. And then you're also, you're, so your NPR stations, they pay a fee or, uh, or sorry, public radio member stations, they pay a fee to run the show and, and it's going to be a smaller edited form of the podcast. And, no, uh, they're running the podcast as it is, the ones that are right now. Oh, that's great. Okay. And right now we're offering it to the stations for free mm-hmm. uh, because to us it's it's important to just get to our audience. We want as many stations to be pushing their listeners to us as possible. And they love the content. I mean, they're glad to have my sensibility of reporting on Washington back on their air. And so we give it to them for free. We do sell underwriting, and that's been going really well. The business model going forward is sort of a little bit of everything. Underwriting will we'll probably end up doing some licensing fees for, for whoever wants to air it to their audience, and we'll probably do some public radio-style fundraising again. We, we probably won't use a, a, a strict formula like or a strict structure like Kickstarter or Indiegogo. We'll just do our own now that we have you know a more committed group of, uh, of, of listeners. Well, that's great. Well, I, I look forward to hearing the rest of the season this year, and and, and good luck on making it on your own. You have a, such a strong start. You've got a strong number of people downloading the podcast already, and you got all of us rooting for you. So Thank congratulations you, and good luck. Thank you. To you, too. <laughs> I, guess, I guess I need some luck, too. Thanks very much for talking to me. Thank you, Glenn. This is just really fun. This is The New Disruptors, a podcast about bridging the connection between creation and attention. You can find us on the web at muleradio.net slash newdisruptors. On Twitter and ADN, we are at New Disruptors. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite app or through iTunes. If you'd like to sponsor the show, visit sponsor.muleradio.net. You can drop me a note via newdisruptors at muleradio.net. Our theme music was composed by my dear friend Jeff Tolbert. I'm Glenn Fleischman. Join us again next time.